welcome to a third season of A Healthy Dose, a bi-weekly podcast hosted by Steve Krauss, healthcare partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, and Trevor Price, CEO of Oxygen Partners and general partner of Town Hall Ventures. The guys shoot the shit about healthcare, usually with leaders from the entrepreneurial, executive, investment, and policy political worlds. Interspersed with that, they rip each other about music, clothes, valuation, and investment track records. Everybody says, say something, say something, say something, say something, say something, say something. I don't want to get caught up in the rhythm of it, but I can't help myself. No, I can't help myself. No, no. Nancy Ham. Well, Trevor, this is like one of these things where serendipity at JPM is great. Yep. Because you texted me, you said, I ran to Nancy Ham. She's got to be She's on. She's got to be on the podcast. I'm yep. like, absolutely yep. love her. In the JP Morgan week where literally you can go. You can't schedule anyone. Yeah. We actually were able to find the time. You know, that's the good. power of you as a co-host. Like no. I run into people on the street. It's the power I'm of like, karma. I'm like, hey, and they walk by, <laughs> you know, but with you, you just bring people in. It's the honeypot. You you're, know, it's you're funny. My so Nancy ran a company called Medvenom, which she talked about, and right. she ran another company called Healthy On. These were two companies that are like very stages of my career. I looked very closely at it. I was in healthcare in the 90s, and Healthy yeah. was a big deal. And then when I kind of got back into this stuff and was coming back into healthcare, Medvedev was like an early player. Fee for in value. Risk, yeah, fee for value. Population health management. And, yeah, and, and, they, that and they was real people. The Jonathan Nyloff was a, who passed away, and I'm very close with his son, was like a leader in the yeah. PHM space. And yeah. then they had Charlie Baker, who's obviously the, you know. The Nancy's, they had Nancy right. Ham and Nancy, Nancy Brown. Brown. So it was yeah. a great company, right. but that was as a- Nancy Ham said, it was like a decade too early. Yeah. And so like a it, great company, great technology, yep. great basis, good customers, but yep. you know. And so you talked to Nancy Ham and goes all the way back to, she said it was not until she got to college that she realized that there were girls out there whose dads had different career aspirations for yeah. them and their boys. And it's just, like, and I think she's like a grizzled healthcare veteran, but with just such a overwhelming spirit of energy and positivity. Totally. Enjoy the podcast. Nancy Ham. Nancy Ham. Hi there. We are. This is a fellow Bostonian who right? left Boston. I think we're going to spend some time on like, was five years ahead of value-based care? Right? Five years. I think Medventive was probably 10 years ahead of Medventive. I mean, I agree. <laughs> can we go further back? Yes. We can go all the way back. All right. Where so do you want to go? Duke undergrad, went straight to business school, and then go into a, the GE Capital rotation. Yes. Were you like dying to be a CFO? What was it like? That GE Capital program is like, it's a pretty epic training program. Well, here's the real story. My first life plan was to live in Paris my entire life from the time I was 12 because I saw a movie, Funny Face, with Fred Astaire and Audrey Hepburn. And so Not that you're I dating yourself. studied French in high school. <laughs> yeah. I minored in French in college. I got a master's in international business. My first job in Atlanta was with Cuddy Lyonnais, the French bank. I was a woman with a plan. Yeah. And then I met my husband, who okay. did not want to run away to Paris with me, but I married him anyway. And so I had to find something else to do. And GE Capital had a good office there, and I was fortunate to get hired on. And it was five you know, incredible years, the best education you could possibly have. Such smart people taught me to love cash flow, taught me how to structure and do deals, taught me how to look at a lot of different industries and come up to speed quickly. 
and because we were in the Atlanta office, we had to shake the Southeast for deals, and what deals were in the Southeast? Healthcare deals. Okay. So we helped take HCA private, we helped do the health trust spin out, and before you blink, we wake up and we have a billion dollars deployed into healthcare. That's pretty incredible. That's what I was doing. And I loved, frankly, the money in investment banking, <laughs> but it was soulless for me. It was all about, it was just all about the money. There was no culture in the company. It was all about, you know, have you done your one deal this year? And that's really not me. And so I started getting a, really inspired by our customers. And I said, you know, I want to get on that side of the table. How do I do that? Before you go, we're gonna, uh, we definitely want to talk about diversity and, and leadership. When you're at GE Capital, I think this was in the 90s, maybe? Was it 80s. 80s? What was, were you the only woman there? Or? Oh, yeah, I've been the only woman almost my entire career. Is that right? Even today, in many, many rooms here at JP Morgan, I am the only woman. Is that demoralizing? It, it's never been for me. I grew up with older brothers, so I grew up very, very competitive. I grew up with an amazing dad. So my dad was a failed entrepreneur. He went bankrupt the year I was born, and I was a surprise. Oh, wow. That's, <laughs> and, a, that's a good and bad year at the same time. So he had to reboot. And so he was in retail, so he joined Sears, and he never could take the chance again. But he rose really quickly, so we moved a lot as he got promoted, and he always had a side hustle. So I grew up working in trash disposal companies and private payphone companies, and we owned dry cleaners. That you would do on the side? Yeah, apartment buildings, Section 8 housing. There was always a side gig. And my dad loved business, and I thought my dad was the coolest man on the face of the planet, and I loved nothing better than hanging out with him, going to the store with him, doing these businesses with him, talking business. So I... The, the greatest gift I was ever given is I made it to college before I found out that some people had different aspirations for daughters than for sons. Mm. And I was shocked. That's fantastic. Amazing. And so it never occurred to me that I couldn't do it because my dad said I could. So that's like so the greatest awesome. testament you could say to father. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so, no, it's never been demoralizing. It seemed normal yeah. to me. I'm like, so fine. I just need to be better. That's okay. I just it's, need to work harder. Cool. You had these moments of um, you were at the famous healthy on WebMD yeah. in the late 90s and 2000, 99 and 2000. You How'd you did. get there? So when I wanted to get on the other side, leave investment banking, I did a brief detour in a Fortune 1000 company who said they were going to get into healthcare, but didn't mean it. And I got a totally random call to come be the CFO of some startup called Actimed. I'm like, well, if you're dumb enough to hire me, I'm dumb enough to take it. So let's <laughs> go. And we raised money from Peter Grua, so my Boston roots go back that far. Wow. Wow. Our Series A failed, like we blew it, and then we rebooted and we did well. We were going public, and John Doerr called and said, don't go public, we're gonna go public, merge with us. So we got 45% of Healthion and went out in a billion dollar IPO, back when that was like real money. And then what a crazy dot-com story. We were smart enough to know that we had a really well-priced stock. And so we were acquisition like crazy. And then we did the four-way merger to become WebMD. And I had the coolest job. My job was to sort of go find, literally, all the customer-facing pieces of all the stuff we'd bought and start to rationalize it. And so, you know, I ran the part of the company that 
frankly had real products and made money. I mean, it's wild they say WebMD. Like that is like when we grew up, that was like one of the defining. Not only just healthcare companies, but like like well, internet healthy, companies. Yeah, Healthion even before right, WebMD. But now, right? I mean, if you walk down the street today and talk to most entrepreneurs about WebMD, they would like know it because it's a you know it's searched app nowadays. But it's like no one knows the story. Like, what did you take from that journey? Well, and by the way, I mean Michael Lewis. Michael right. Lewis wrote the new new thing about. Healthy on and about you yeah. know invention, which was really cool. So, one, what I took from it, we had an amazing collection of talent. There's probably 20 CEOs out of that company, hmm. and so that network has been a big part of my career because uh, we've all grown up together. We've all helped one another. Um, I really learned the value of speed. Like, just don't get so bogged down. Make a decision, and if you effed it up, we'll make a better decision. But forward momentum. I really learned to embrace change and chaos and make it a competitive edge. I really learned a tempo that, frankly, has been hard for me to find ever since because we worked seven days a week and thought we were privileged to do it. And a lot of people think about WebMD because of the content, and but it was the back office pipes and all the information, yeah, the data, that was really the core of the business, right? Well, Actimed, what we brought, we had outsourced from United Healthcare their proprietary claims clearinghouse. I'm really dating myself now. Our job was to take it to the this internet thing and make it multi-payer. We outsourced from SmithKline their proprietary lab order entry results reporting system. Our job was to you know, take it to a modern tech stack diversify it. We had the first e-prescribing network. My part of the business was all about creating electronic highways for financial, administrative, and clinical data, and really starting to create that first interoperable backbone. So 20 I've years later, we're still talking I've about I've been it. trying to do it for a long time, and uh, you know, still lots to do. So John Doerr, legendary, all-time greatest venture capitalist. Yeah. I think we all know him and have immense regard for him. What's it like working for him when you're in a board meeting with him? And, you know, what's he like? Well, John and Jim Clark together in the yeah. boardroom, that is a lot of intellectual horsepower and energy. There are a lot of devices. There's a lot of impatience. There's a lot of high intellectual discourse. So you better be really prepared to walk in. Are they the type of person that's immediately detail-oriented? Or do they, do they operate at a high level and then they get a sense and they drive, they go 30,000 to five feet? They at a spherical level. So there's really no distinguishment from I'm gonna be strategic oh, or I'm gonna be detailed. You're just going wherever you need to go. Wherever the conversation takes you. Yes, awesome. you guys would love it because that's the way you are. You know, you go up, down, I wish all around. Spherical. I think I it's more, <laughs> yeah, we are definitely all around. <laughs> I'm, not sure there's a, yeah. I'm not sure there's a defining arc to the sphere, but we try. Yeah. So 2008, you are the CEO of a company called Medvenev. Mm -hmm. Is that your first CEO gig? It was. But let's be clear, this is 2008, and you yep. were building a software program to help physicians manage taking risk. Well, it was a is remarkable that... story. So Dr. Jonathan Nyloff, who was tragically passed, you know, Jonathan was running the MSO at Beth Israel, and he was in full capitated risk uh, for a couple hundred thousand lives and losing his shirt. Yeah. And so he really said, I've got to figure out how to do this and what kind of tools do I need? And he built it for himself. And he built something that worked. They started making money. And so other people started coming around from a best practice perspective and saying, well, what are you doing? And eventually, you know, can I buy it? And so they spun it out to create Medventive. 
And so he was so far ahead of his time, but it provably totally. worked. And we ran the tables of everyone who was taking risk at that time. Uh, really hot, you know, people like Cedar sinai and Hill Physicians and Brown and Tolan, yeah, sure. you know, uh, Indiana University, of course, everybody in Massachusetts, because they were all in some uh, material AQC, AQC risk. And uh, the technology worked beautiful, but the, the weakness was what I think we see a lot in healthcare. It's the adoption and the change management on the customer side. I'll never forget a board meeting. I had been tortured by this one client. Tortured because they had their own registry of diabetics and we, we duplicated it and we were off by like two diabetics and they were just absolutely torturing me about the data and all the differences. Finally, they were happy. And so I went to the, the go live and I literally sort of did a Karnak moment. I'm really dating myself here today. But I walked and I said, I have in this envelope a list of all your high-risk patients and all your frequent flyers and everyone you need to work with. Put it on the table. What are you going to do with it? I'm like, uh, I don't know. And so I looked and I said, holy crap. We've signed all these contracts. In three years, when they all come up for renewal, no one's going to renew hmm. because no one knows what to do with this information that we have given them. And that was really part of my, our decision to say, we need to either get into pro services or we need to become part of a bigger organization. And so we already had a big partnership with McKesson. Mm -hmm. We had replaced their uh, tech on the payer side and we merged into McKesson because we were too early, yeah. which was tragic because the, the technology was really beautiful. Do you think we're still too early? Yes, I do. That's why I'm not doing Pop Health anymore. You know, it's still such a small percentage of the revenue stream, and it requires significant change management. So it only works in these pockets where you're at least California, Florida, thirty percent at risk, and then it's worth changing, and it's worth is aligning the change the management incentives. economic or is it practice history? I mean, is this about the age and the and the experiences of the docs, or is it about the transparency of economics or the transparency of data? Because docs want to do the right thing. If you put data in front of them, money's a lever. Well, it starts with uh, one of our favorite things to do was to go to the kickoff meeting and we would unveil the unblinded physician opportunities to improve, we like <laughs> to call them. And what was fascinating to me is people knew. They already knew. They would say, Trevor, We've been telling you for years you over-order imaging, and now we have proof. Trevor's a big fee-for-service Well, I yeah. know, so yeah. that's why I'm pointing yeah. him out. Yeah. Highly transactional. And so then I'm like, well, what are you going to do? And so you have to be willing to change comp structures for physicians. Yep. You have to be willing to fire people from your group. Yep. I mean, you have to be willing to do hard things. Paid, literally paid for doing the right thing? Like, not, not on an RVU basis, but, like, on a micro basis, like, make the right decision, you're gonna get paid 10 bucks. I, I don't think it's that precise, but I do think they should be incentivized. So our most successful customers paid physicians on a weighted scorecard basis, of which quality was a huge component. Meeting their at-risk metrics was a significant component, and that created alignment. So, I mean, we're still struggling with this whole change management thing. Yeah. I had a chance to wander off and go to 
back to something easy like interoperability <laughs> and go to Healthogen and be part of Aetna and be part of trying to build you know, that business, run yeah. Medicity, the largest HIE in the world. So I, I, I just bounce between impossible tasks, I think. But so that's an interesting situation because you're in a huge company, Aetna, and then you're in what is effectively their equivalent of Trying Optum to be Optum. To, yeah, trying Optum, to be Optum or Anthem's. So you're in a much smaller subsidiary that's trying to be edgy and kind of venture capital-esque in a big company. And then you're the CEOs of one of the subsidiaries that was a startup that was acquired. Yep. Chuck, Chuck Saunders, Saunders, of yeah. course, ran health agent. So, so that's got to be schizophrenic. You know, the first three to four years were brilliant. Chuck was our fearless leader. He brought a lot of us in with venture, entrepreneurial backgrounds. Um, we had a lot of freedom from the mothership. Uh, Mark Berlini had a belief structure that we uh, needed to be left alone so that we could have our own culture and we could innovate at a different pace. We were setting up ACOs for Aetna. Yeah. Uh, we were really successful, had 35% of Aetna's membership in true ACOs, upside downside risk. We had incredible flywheel for starting companies. We started like eight companies. So it was beautiful because we had access to Aetna's data. We had a structured innovation process called a slingshot where we would bring in a cross-functional set of people for one or two weeks and we would literally leave the slingshot with a uh, PowerPoint, a clickable prototype of a product. We would go away and work on it, come back to the second slingshot and then we had it. And then because we had the data, we could go to Aetna's national accounts and say Costco, Nordstrom, uh, to pick out you know, some early great innovation partners. Here's what your data says about the prevalence of this issue. Here's our solution. Do you want to be our beta partner? And it was amazing. And then you know, the Humana merger came along. Obviously, it didn't happen, but it came along. The company started reorganizing around what the integration was going to be. There was a need for a few billion dollars of synergies. And so you know, the ability to invest really, really dried up. So, but within a place like Healthogen, you said you started a bunch of companies, NeoCare being mm -hmm. one. Did any of them achieve like, scale and success? You've lived inside of big companies mm -hmm. like GE and Aetna. You've lived inside of scaling companies like Healthion and WebMD. You've lived inside of venture capital companies mm -hmm. that are trying to find their footing like Medventive. Was that a, a pipe dream to try to create highly, highly entrepreneurial yeah. companies inside of a division of a massive company? It was actually working very well. What happened was the need to produce synergies and to reorganize the company around Humana and then CVS just took the company a different path. Got it. Because all these companies were thirsty. They were consuming capital, you know, as startup companies do. And the only funding source was the mothership. And the mothership... But Optum's as good as... Optum's is the model for everyone. They don't create companies. They just buy companies. Right. It's an M&A... Well, that's what I was going to ask is, uh, you know, I agree. There, uh, by the way, tremendous amount of talented people came out of that. Part of that organization came out of it. I'm a beneficiary of some of them in my companies. Sure. Yeah. But I think the question behind the question is, is that model flawed? Nothing against Aetna. Every single large corporation faces this. Guess what? They miss a quarter. They miss two quarters. The stock, you know, I think a lot of these CVCs are doing good in healthcare, but they're probably going to get out of it because the market tanks and you got other priorities. Like, is it just a fundamental condemnation of that model? Like, it just doesn't work because the short-term EPS pressures that public companies face, and so therefore, 
this model won't ever work. I think it is really difficult because when you are the CFO of Aetna and right. you, you do a roll up and you see where your quarter is and, you know. What's the first thing to go? Innovation, because right. it's expensive and the, the payoff is too long. Right. And so or too it's, small, it's not moving the EPS number. Well, that, that's the inverse. That's out. why we see so many great companies bought by, you know, Fortune 500 companies. And because they can't be $100 million next year, the acquirer gets bored and kills them. Right. And I'm shocked after all this time that people still don't realize the length of time it takes to build a scaled company in healthcare <laughs> and why they think the you know, laws of gravity or nature bend for them because they're XYZ big company and they're going to be able to do it when no one or ever XYZ has. Or XYZ entrepreneur tech venture capitalist, by the way. Yeah. I, I, I just don't understand. And so um, that's what I love about my new company because it has perfectly scaled from birth. We have 12 years of that quarter on quarter beautiful growth chart. But, you know, WebPT has some interesting advantages. Uh, I always say it was lucky by birth. Physical therapy was left out of meaningful use. And so that meant the company had to build a product that hardworking physical therapists wanted to buy. Who don't have a lot of money. Who don't have a lot of money. So it needs to have amazing fit for purpose. We were born at a time we could be cloud from birth, so we never had to replatform. We were born at a time when it was a $30 billion industry virtually on paper. I mean, what an amazing greenfield opportunity. And in a little ironic footnote, we were lucky because WebMD had not domain protected the name WebPT. And so uh, the company grabbed it. And from the very first trade show, people were like, yeah, we've heard of you. And the company said, oh, yeah, good, awesome. You also were beginning with the explosion of knee and hip replacements and you know, an aging population that so was an explosion yeah. of orthopedic care and needing physical therapy. And so you had all types of tailwinds, huh? Yeah, so it's been an extraordinarily capital efficient company. It's only ever raised $4 million in. We've had just two wonderful PE investors, Battery Ventures and now Warburg. And I can't tell you what a privilege <laughs> just it pause is. pause for a second. $4 million into that company. It's good for them. Yeah. It's remarkable. No, it, it is remarkable. And I just feel so lucky I found it. So it's a joy to be an EMR company, first of all. Whoa, wait a second. I was Most just going to say, like, say that. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about something, though. If you look at the eight major EMRs, Cerner, Epic, that whole crowd, seven of them have negative net promoter scores. I think it's the only one that's positive. Right. WebPT has the highest net promoter score of any EMR that I know of. So it's back to amazing fit for purpose, obsession with our customers who we call members, because we've really created a very special community of what it means to be in the WebPT family. And I love being the EMR because we can innovate in a way I've never been able to. I spent 25 years fighting with EMRs, partnering with EMRs, going under them, over them, through them, around them. And now we can have an idea or problem and in a few weeks, you know, we can really have it out and available. And when you're the EMR, your ability to innovate around that and bring other solutions to your customers. Uh, in the case of PT, you need a lot of help given the economics of their industry. It's a pleasure. And I have to say really loudly, physical therapists are the nicest customer base <laughs> I've ever had. Is the physical therapy industry, I mean, let's, let's go back to your origins with Medventive. We're seeing bundled payments in a number of different parts of clinical care, including orthopedics. 
our bundle payments and shared savings and outcomes-based reimbursement heading towards the physical therapy space? We're trying to accelerate that pace because obviously that's my background, but up until very recently, there were no scaled players. It was all single shingles. You know, think about um, 37,000 clinics like primary care was 15 to 20 years ago. What's exciting to me now is there's 25 private equity firms investing in the physical therapy industry, creating rolled up companies, so creating companies of scale. But even today, there's only 14 companies that have 100 or more clinics. And so what we're doing is creating a virtual network across our customers so that we can go to people who want to do really interesting things and we can bring them enough in, in their geography that's relevant. So we are trying to do something really interesting with Optum. Optum did a lot of research, uh, looking at pain, looking at pathways, looking at where people come into the system and where they end up, and they came out with a few really important stats. One, 75% of all opioids are for musculoskeletal pain, which makes sense. Of that, about 59% are for low back pain, non-surgical low back pain, kind of makes sense. But what they found out is that people with low back pain who go directly to conservative care, PT, chiropractic care, acupuncture, and go at least three visits, they are 90% less likely to ever see an opioid. So if you want to do something about opioids and you want to stop people from starting, you should send them straight to physical therapy. So Turns out PT works. It works. And by the way, it saves upstream and downstream cost. So we organize 40% of the market, 15,000 clinics. And so we have a unique ability to start to create some really interesting economic models in musculoskeletal, which is, you know, 16, 17% of spend. I assume you guys are doing RevCycle too and have other yeah. parts of the product, not just the clinical side. Yeah. Practice we, full practice management. The industry has been, you know, fairly mom and pop. This industry can be revolutionized and it needs to be because Today, every year, 128 million adults have a musculoskeletal condition that lasts more than three months that would benefit from physical therapy. 10% of them start physical therapy. So they are sitting at home in pain, they're getting injections, imaging, opioids, and surgery when there is a better path which I'm obviously fired up about. years ago, there was a move with the Microsoft Connect technology that you know maps the body when all the video games, and yep. there were certain companies that were gonna be created to just provide basically virtual PT. Mm-hmm. All of that would be translated into data, it would be sent to your orthopedist or a physical therapist, and they would manage you remotely. It didn't work. Why? There are at least 18 companies I know of startup-y companies that have some kind of cool digital sensor gamification virtual tech but like a lot of healthcare innovations they haven't found the right business model and i think we're getting there now employers are really starting to lead in to these investments in a big way and also I'd like to think that the retail physical therapy industry is changing because they should want to use this stuff too at some point and that's been a, a, a mental mind shift to say, not every patient has to come to in the clinic. Yeah, yeah. It can complement what I'm doing. It can help expand into that 90%. And these PE-backed companies have brought in a lot of excellent leadership from across healthcare who have pop health experience, who have telemedicine experience. So 
I think it's going to change. Is your product going to evolve? Is this something that you're working on from a product standpoint with a virtual interaction and a sensor at home and, and analyzing the data? I'm following all these young companies yeah. and I'm waiting and watching and thinking and yeah. we'll do something. Do you see Peloton? being a threat to the... Well, mirror, maybe. Or mirror, Mirror, I think, would be a better fit. Well, the only reason I like Peloton is because they have the coaches, too. And sometimes with PT, you need the digital-enabled exercise, plus the coaching helps on the background, right? Well, what I think is there needs to be a a reinvention, because right now, for movement, which we all know how important movement is throughout your whole life, for, for musculoskeletal, it's so choppy. I'm in high school and I'm in sports, and then I'm in my 20s and I'm healthy and I'm doing fitness training or performance training or CrossFit. Then I get injured, I go to PT, but then I go to massage over here and I go to acupuncture over there and I have a nutritionist and then I'm older and I'm re-injured. And so that patient journey is so disconnected. And so we see 35% of our customers are in one of those other services now trying to create in essence an MSK medical home, I think is the future of this industry. And by the way, that's why we never run out of headroom to keep expanding, because MSK is 16 or 17% no, of all I, the health care. And so we're not gonna stay kind of landlocked in outpatient rehab. We wanna create an ecosystem where the patient can stay for life. That's great. I am very glad that I bumped into you the other day here at JP Always Morgan, a pleasure. We were, were you at one of Trevor's cocktail parties? I, no, it was in daylight yeah. at a coffee shop. Yeah, I was drinking still coffee, having, not booze. Drinking coffee. Yeah, I was wow, drinking you coffee, in the rare hour of the day. <laughs> yeah. I was drinking coffee. Right, right. I was drinking coffee because I was drinking booze. No. Uh, and I'm super glad at J.P. Morgan Week, we were able to pull this off. This is super fun. No, this was awesome. I love Nancy Ham, by the way. Totally. I so admire, like, just a great force of energy in this industry. I miss you. You used to be my Boston buddy. The I inside know. On your, like the a, inside on your father is actually, I hope a lot of people listen to that. Well, maybe that's my, my final comments to all you dads out there. Just every single day, tell your daughter that she is amazing and they should all be CEOs. That's and right. give them that self-confidence. It, it, it'll make a difference. All right. so Amen. Let's end on that. Thank you. I can't help myself. No, I can't help myself. No, no. Thanks for listening to A Healthy Dose. Please subscribe through iTunes. And if you have any suggestions for topics or guests, please tweet us at a healthy dose pod.